The Freedom Dividend Podcast represents my opinions on financial markets, investing, economics, and politics. All information disseminated on the podcast is not investment advice. Anyone seeking financial advice should look to contact a licensed broker or industry-registered financial advisor. We had a day where, again, investors in the market today went to the risk-off trade. We saw a bounce in the markets over the past few days, especially over the last half of last week, where we had big rallies in all the major indexes, and the biggest rallies really occurred the most in the most speculative tech stocks and growth stocks out there in the market. If you look at the ARK Innovation ETF, that ETF is up almost 17% just over the past week and a half or so. And so we've really seen over the past few days, a lot of investors coming in and buying the dips. Again, the the Russia-Ukraine crisis that is now getting more and more dangerous by the day has scared investors and created a lot of risk in the markets. But investors are starting to come in and buy the dips here. But today that really reversed itself as the S&P 500 was about flat to start the day and sold off little by little as we went further and further in, intraday and into the close. Now, if you look at the S&P 500's performance, we're still now in a correction. The S&P 500 is down 10% year to date. The Nasdaq is down 14.5% year to date. And the small cap stocks in the Russell 2000 are down 11% year to date. But what's more notable, especially with these downward moves in the overall U.S. indices, is the relative outperformance in other assets, particularly the ones that we've been recommending in commodities, most particularly in the gold and oil sectors, also in value stocks, and more notably in foreign value stocks. If you look at the iShares Emerging Market ETF, that ETF is down 6% year to date. So it's not positive, but it's only down 6% year to date when stocks that are most closely resembling stocks in that ETF in US markets would be in the NASDAQ. And the NASDAQ is down 14.5% year to date. So more than double the the underperformance of that emerging markets ETF. And if you go into the iShare value ETF, uh, ticker IVLU, that is down only 3% year to date. And so that is really outperforming US markets. And remember, that is an ETF that has tons of high dividend paying value stocks. So the real returns for that ETF are actually higher so far this year and in positive territory if you include the distribution yield. But again, the outperformance really occurring in value stocks and most particularly international value stocks. If you look at oil, oil was up over 10% on the day. We finally broke $100 a barrel for West Texas crude. Uh, We finished the day, as I'm looking right now in the Asia trading session, we're at over $107 per barrel. Uh, Brent oil even higher, about $108 per barrel. Gold had a very, very strong day. Started the day around 1920 and had a very solid, strong, slow and steady climb all the way up to about 1945 an ounce. And we settled the day just at about 1943. But 
it was a very steady and slow decline, which is very, very bullish for this market. It wasn't a spike on news or anything coming out of the Russia-Ukraine situation. It was just a slow and steady climb as investors continued to look for the risk-off bets. Now, the recent rally that I just talked about in a lot of the growth stocks, especially the ARC innovation names, a lot of people were saying that we possibly found a market bottom in the U.S. and that we were going to come straight back into a bull market. But I think the action today most resembles what I've been saying, that we're in the midst of a bear market and this market has a long way to go down. Again, I think that a lot of the action over the past few days is just short coverings where people who are short a lot of the high growth stocks, since there was such a big move to the downside, they came in and squared up their books and bought the stocks back so that they were no longer short and they took profits off the table. But again, this is just a small dead cat bounce. And again, the momentum is still very, very clearly to the downside in a lot of these high growth stocks. And again, these stocks have a long way to fall just because they've come off a long way since last year doesn't mean that they're bargain buys here. These are stocks that are still, for the most part, not producing any earnings at all. Or if they're producing earnings, the earnings are very minimal. And again, the Federal Reserve has not even begun to raise interest rates yet. And as interest rates rise, growth stock valuations must come down because growth stocks are worth the future value of all their cash flows. And so these stocks are going to continue to come down, especially as we head into what's supposed to be a rising interest rate environment. And I'll get into that in a little bit, as I think it might be possible the Fed might shift directions already because of the Russia-Ukraine situation. But again, there's a huge flight to safety that is being shown in the markets. Investors are going for risk-off assets. We also saw that in the performance of Bitcoin over the last few days. Bitcoin had a sharp rally to the upside, up over 10%. I think we got as high as about $44,500 per Bitcoin. Uh, and it's come down slightly off those recent highs. But I think that is for two reasons. One, I think there was a lot of capitulation, like I said, in risk assets. And so people came in and bought the dips. And again, Bitcoin has been very highly correlated lately with the NASDAQ. And so it is showing that it is a risk asset, not a risk off safe haven asset like everyone claims that it is. But also, I think because a lot of people in Ukraine have been able to receive some sort of donations via Bitcoin or Ethereum that was helping to further the narrative that it's some sort of medium of exchange. And so I think a lot of traders front ran that trade on anticipation. People would buy it, uh, buy Bitcoin or Ethereum in order to send to uh, the Ukrainians in support. So I think that those gains are going to be given up rather quickly and we're going to be continuing to the downside and momentum in Bitcoin as well especially as other risk assets continue to sell off. And uh, one other thing that we saw in the last few days is a lot of purchasing of U.S. Treasury bonds. Again, a lot of investors still see U.S. Treasury bonds as risk-off assets. Now, one of the riskiest assets you can buy today, uh, it's a little less risky than Bitcoin, but one of the more risky assets is U.S. Treasury bonds. Now, there's been a lot of buying in the twos and 10-year Treasury bonds but the 10-year yield is now all the way back down to 1.7%. Now, remember, it was just a few weeks ago that the yield on, on the 10-year treasury got up above 2%.
So there's been a lot of buying coming into the markets. Now, part of that buying, believe it or not, has still been the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, we got the release of their balance sheet last Thursday, as we get every Thursday, and their balance sheet grew from 8.6 to $8.7 trillion. So they came in and bought another $100 billion worth of U.S. Treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities. So some of that buying has come from the Federal Reserve itself. Again, more money printing in the face of all of the inflation pressures that we continue to see. But getting back to the U.S. Treasury bonds, again, a lot of investors have been buying them as uh, safety trades, getting out of risk. But again, U.S. Treasury bonds are one of the riskiest assets out there. Right now, inflation is officially 7.5%. It's going to continue to go a lot higher. And with all of the problems that are going on in Russia and Ukraine, there's going to be a lot more inflation for the rest of the world, including us in the West moving forward. But again, the real inflation rate, which is shown by our increase in export prices of the goods that we produce in America, is closer to 15% if you measure the inflation rate honestly. So if you hold U.S. Treasury bonds, which are just promises to be paid U.S. dollars in the future, that means every year that you hold those bonds, you're guaranteed to lose 15% of your purchasing power per year every year that you hold those bonds. And again, as inflation pressures continue to rise, that guaranteed loss of purchasing power is continuing to get greater and greater. So there's no reason to hold U.S. Treasury bonds. And again, I expect that trend to reverse itself. I think a lot of selling in the bond market is going to occur over the next few weeks. And I think interest rates are going to rise substantially, especially when you consider the yields on the two and the 10-year treasuries. Now, with that, I want to talk a bit about the Russian economy. And if you have been following at all what's been going on over in Russia, the Russian ruble has now gone through a full crash. The Russian ruble is now down over 40% over the past week and a half, and prices are skyrocketing for Russian citizens. And also, the stock market in Russia has been absolutely clobbered. Stocks in Russia are now down 70% since uh, the, the invasion started just over a week ago. And so we're seeing a complete stagflation environment in the Russian economy. The currency is crashing. Prices are skyrocketing. And with all of the sanctions that are being placed on Russia by the European nations and the United States, we're starting to see a lot of economic pressure being put on Putin. Now, personally, I think that Putin has a long-term game plan here, and I don't think any of this is going to make him back down from his ultimate goal. But I do think that these pressures are going to have a very big impact on the rest of the world. Now, Russia is actually a very big nation. Uh, Their population is just over 140 million citizens, but they are one of the world's biggest oil producers. And again, there's already supply shortages in oil. And now that there's a lot of sanctions going on, there's going to be even less and less oil to go around for the markets, which is one reason why we saw such a huge spike today in the price of oil. And again, we got over $107 per barrel today, and there's no reason to believe why oil prices are going to slow down anytime soon. Now, President Biden announced that they're going to release more reserves from the oil reserves, but that's still not going to make much of a difference here. 
And again, one of the big problems for the oil markets right now is that because we've been in a bubble for so long where so many people have been buying high tech growth stocks, very few people over the last decade plus have been willing to invest in oil companies. Now, one of the reasons is, is because oil companies have not met the requirements to be at ESG uh, approved. And so therefore, a lot of investment hasn't gone into those uh, into that sector. But also, because nobody's been interested in investing in oil stocks, there's been no CapEx spending to build more and more oil rigs to meet the higher demand for oil. And so because there hasn't been any expending in that industry over the past decade, we don't have the capacity to be able to produce enough oil to meet the demand in the current market. And so therefore, prices are going through the roof. And again, they're going to continue to go higher. It's my expectation that by this time next year, uh, oil prices get well over $150 per barrel and can even approach almost $200 per barrel, especially if this Russia-Ukraine conflict continues to go on for much longer, which it probably will. But again, getting back to the point that I was making with the Russian ruble crashing, the stock markets crashing in Russia, and all of the economic hardships that are taking place in Russia because of that, this is a scenario that is going to most likely occur in the United States very, very soon, because we have so many problems that can lead to this type of stagflation. And again, as I mentioned, one of the riskiest assets that you can own right now is U.S. Treasury bonds. Now, one of the biggest holders of U.S. Treasury bonds, aside from the Federal Reserve, is the Chinese. And again, we, man we bring in all of our imports from China for the most part. We bring them in from all over the place. But we bring in so many imports from China, and we pay for those imports by issuing U.S. Treasury bonds. Now, once the Chinese recognize that we're not going to be able to solve our inflation problem for the reasons that I've been saying on this podcast, the, the Chinese are going to dump their U.S. treasuries onto the market. That's going to cause a huge, huge downward pressure in the bond and the currency markets as far as the U.S. dollar is concerned. And the dollar could very likely fall just as much as the Russian ruble has fallen in the past few days. And also, again, if the bonds continue to get sold into the market and yields continue to go higher and higher, that means that uh, stock valuations are going to continue to come down further and further in the United States, which would create the same exact scenario that Russians are facing, facing right now. And again, another reason that we've had uh, the rally in the, uh, the more speculative growth names in the markets the past few days is because bond yields have come down. But again, those are going to move much higher in the next couple months as people start to recognize that the Federal Reserve cannot fight inflation. And again, the Federal Reserve has still not even begun to sell any of these assets off of their balance sheet or let any of these assets mature and run off to get them off their balance sheet. So there's a lot of selling in the bond market yet to occur over the next few months, whether we get a resolution in Russia or in Ukraine or not. And the other part of this Russia-Ukraine conflict that's going on is also that, and most people didn't realize this, but... Ukraine is the biggest exporter of wheat in the world. They export over 80% of America's wheat. So with all of the hardships that are going on over there right now, again, this is going to affect the West and the United States and not only expect prices to go up at the pump much higher, 
uh, in the next few months. But you can also expect your food prices to go up much, much higher over the next few months. And I don't see any way that the CPI reading the next time we get it is going to be anything less than 10% inflation because there are just so many pressures now. Again, oil is an input cost in pretty much everything that we buy. So with oil prices skyrocketing, again, over 10% today, they're up over $107 a barrel as I speak and continuing to go much higher. There's no reason to believe why inflation would slow down anytime soon. Now, with that, I want to go over, I saw a Michael Saylor interview that he did today. He was on the PBD podcast. Michael Saylor, of course, touting Bitcoin as he does all the time these days. Uh, He's not really running MicroStrategy as a company anymore. He's just going around trying to sucker more people into buying Bitcoin. And the reason I wanted to go over some of the things he said today is because I watched the interview in full. It was about a two-hour interview. And some of the things that he said were incredibly ridiculous, but he wasn't even challenged on any of these things. And uh, Patrick Bet David, who runs that podcast, did try to question him on a few things. He brought up some of the points that Peter Schiff has made, and he did say that they tried to have Peter there, but he couldn't make it to have a debate. But he brought up some of the points that Peter Schiff has made, and Michael Saylor made some of the most ridiculous claims. But again, I can see why people believe this guy, because he does sound like he's very, very intelligent. And in some ways he is, but in some ways he he almost it's almost incredible the nonsense that he says. Now, one of the things that he said about Peter Schiff is that you shouldn't believe him when he says that gold is going to do well in the upcoming economic environment because he only holds a small portion of his portfolio in gold. And if you don't know, Peter Schiff recommends having about 5 to 10% of his portfolio in gold. And that's about what I would recommend. And the reason being, and they didn't go over this in the podcast, which was pro- part of the problem, But the reason being is because gold is not an investment. Gold is money, and it's sort of like an alternative to keeping cash on the sidelines when you're waiting for some bargain prices to come in on stocks. The reason you want to own stocks is because they're productive assets that produce income and produce dividends. And so gold is supposed to be a very small part of a portfolio, specifically because it's not an investment. It's just a safe uh, risk-off asset. Now, Michael Saylor, of course, his entire net worth is put into Bitcoin, but not only is his entire net worth put into Bitcoin, but he's borrowed money on behalf of MicroStrategy in the billions and billions of dollars worth to buy even more Bitcoin on leverage. Now, again, it's not sound financial advice to go and tell people to to borrow money to buy assets that have huge sums of volatility. So the fact that people think that he's giving good financial advice by telling people to borrow money to buy Bitcoin is ridiculous. But one other thing that's ridiculous about that is that he says he doesn't care about the short-term price movements of Bitcoin because he's in it for the long haul. He's investing with a long-term time frame, which would be one thing except for the fact that he's taken on so much leverage to buy all this Bitcoin. Because when you go on leverage and you lever up and you you go on margin to buy financial assets, whether it be Bitcoin or stocks, if there is a sharp downturn in the markets in the short term, you can be forced to sell your holdings, 
even if you want to hold them for the long term. And so the, re- the reality of the situation is Michael Saylor does really care about the short term results, but he just won't admit that. And again, I think one of the reasons that he's been buying so much, every time Bitcoin has a huge dip, he announces that MicroStrategy has borrowed even more money to go out and buy more Bitcoin. I think one of the reasons for that is because he's trying to create more hype by stopping the price from dipping and getting it to go back up even further to try and sucker more people into buying. But they they own so much Bitcoin at this point that they really need to keep the market levitated because if it falls too much, they will get a margin call. And if MicroStrategy gets a margin call, the, the whole bottom can drop out of the Bitcoin market very quickly if they're forced to start selling all of their holdings. And again, I've mentioned this before, but over 50% of all the Bitcoin is owned by less than 1% of all the wallets that hold Bitcoin. And so if you're in Bitcoin, you're reliant on people that have huge holdings not selling or not being forced to sell because of a margin call because of some type of liquidity event from a sharp downturn in the markets very quickly. Another thing that Michael Saylor said for why he owns Bitcoin is because he's concerned about a lot of the money printing and quantitative easing and inflation that's occurring in the US dollar. And all this is he's right about, of course, all the macroeconomic stuff that he talks about, he is completely accurate on. He also understands that currencies over time, fiat currencies lose a lot of value, that the dollar over the last hundred years has lost 99% of its value. And he correctly called out, he talked about this this, uh, beach house he bought in Miami when it was originally sold in 1930, the house sold for $100,000. And just a few years ago, he purchased that same house for $14 million. And he was correct to point this out, but he pointed out the fact that it's not the house that's gone up in value that much. It's just that the US dollar being used to buy the house has gone down in value so much that now it just costs so many more US dollars to buy that house. And he pointed out the same thing with US stocks. He said, look, US stocks have gone up a lot over the past decade and earnings have gone up for the stocks as well. But the only reason earnings are up for the stocks is because so much money has been printed and put in the pockets of Americans. And so really, it's not that stocks are getting more valuable. It's just that the dollars being used to buy the stocks are getting less valuable, which again is completely true. And again, it's about you know the, the inflation that's occurred over the past decade occurred in financial assets instead of consumer prices. We're starting to see this past year that the inflation is now making its way out of financial assets and into consumer prices, which is why we have such a high inflation rate uh, as measured by the consumer price index. But again, the reason he said he doesn't want to own real estate is because he says the government can tax it every year. But he also didn't point out that real estate's a productive asset, where if you own a piece of property, you could rent the property out and collect rental property. He said he didn't want to own stocks because of the same reason. But again, the problem is you, you when you own stocks, they're actually productive assets and they produce cash flows and earnings. And as a shareholder, you're paid a part portion of those earnings in the form of a dividend. He also said he didn't want to own gold because he said that the government has seized gold before. Now, that actually is not true. In the United States, during the Great Depression, Uh, FDR did constitute a law where any Americans who owned gold 
in the form of a monetary asset had to turn their gold into the government, but the gold was not seized. You turned your gold into the government and you got fair market value for that gold. Aside from that, it's not like the government went door to door and actually collected all the gold. If you chose to not turn it in, then the government didn't come after you. But the fact of the matter is, is Bitcoin can very easily be seized. And we see this in a perfect example from the recent uh, FTX hacking. Uh, the, the, the hackers were, or the, the money launderers were recently caught and the government instantly seized $3.6 billion uh, worth of Bitcoin. They seized it very quickly. So Bitcoin can be seized. uh, Gold can't be seized, and it's never been seized in U.S. history. But he pointed this out, and again, nobody questioned him on it at all. The other reason he said he doesn't want to own gold is because he said that the the gold miners produce 2% more gold supply every year. But part of the problem with that is that while it's true that at least it's only a 2% uh, rate of inflation, so to speak, and the amount of gold. But the problem with that is it's very expensive to mine an ounce of gold. And so that's what creates a floor price for the ounce of gold. Now, the most efficient gold mining companies in the world, even if you look at Newmont Mining, for example, Newmont Mining, their all-in cost to get one ounce of gold out of the ground is about $1,200 per ounce. So the gold has a floor price of about $1,200 an ounce, as if the price falls below that much, gold mining companies are no longer going to spend money to build mines to mine more gold. Sort of like we've seen over the past decade with the prices of oil, since the price of oil has been so suppressed over the past decade, a lot of oil companies did not spend extra money to build new oil rigs to drill for more oil. And so there's always going to be a natural floor for a commodity price like oil or gold or wheat or soybeans or silver, uh, what have you. So the fact that 2%, the gold gold amount increases by 2% a year is, is a very weak argument to make for not owning it. But then again, the reason you own gold is for safety. It's like having a, an emergency fund in savings so that this way, if something goes wrong in the economy, you have an insurance policy against whatever goes wrong. But again, if you own gold, again, there's no capital gains tax. If you own Bitcoin, you got to pay capital gains on it because if you buy or sell it, the government's going to know about it. If you buy or sell physical gold, the government doesn't know if you still have the gold or not. And so you never have to pay capital gains tax. And so there's a lot that, that, that gold has that Bitcoin doesn't. One of the other things that he wasn't questioned about on the program, and they tried to question him a little bit, but the, the problem is, is every time they, they started to ask him a question, he would interrupt them, and then he'd immediately digress into a different subject on Bitcoin. But he says that it's scarce and there's only 21 million of them, and that it's the only thing that you can use to transport money anywhere on the globe in an instant, in the matter of a split second. But of course, that's not true because... Even though there's only 21 million Bitcoin, there's plenty of other cryptocurrencies that you can use to transport throughout the globe in just as speedy of a time frame. But again, nobody asked him about that. And again, that's a big problem with Bitcoin because as you see more and more 
uh, people coming into the crypto space, it's more and more likely someone creates something that's even more efficient than Bitcoin. And in fact, it's very likely that there's already a cryptocurrency out there that is more efficient than Bitcoin. But again, nobody even at bothered to ask Michael Saylor about the uh, aspect of Bitcoin being a unit of account or a medium of exchange by being a deferred method of payment, by being a store of value, right? Everyone just believes it's a store of value because the price has gone up so much over time. But as we've seen over the last year, anything that can go straight up in price can come crashing down in price. Now, again, one of the Bitcoin arguments that Michael Saylor and a lot of the Bitcoin community has made over the past uh, several years is that Bitcoin has been a better inflation hedge than gold, because even though we've had a lot of inflation over the past several years, gold hasn't been performing that well. Well, now that we are seeing where we're at in the markets today, that narrative has completely fallen apart over the past year. And so nobody in the Bitcoin community is talking about that. The inflation rate, again, over the last year, officially as measured by the consumer price index, is 7.5%. We know the inflation rate's much higher, but if you just take the government numbers at face value of 7.5% inflation, gold is up about 8 or 9% over that same time frame. And Bitcoin is still down year to date. If you go back to where it hit 69000 Anyone who bought Bitcoin at 69000 is now down over 30% on that initial purchase. And again, over 50% of all people that own Bitcoin own it at a loss because they bought it within the last 12 months. So Bitcoin clearly is not a store of value. Again, it's not a medium of exchange. It's not a unit of account. Uh, and so it meets none of the requirements for money. And again, the only use it has is as money. So if it meets none of the requirements for money, it can't be used as money. That means it's worthless and the fair market value is zero. And that is where Bitcoin will eventually go whenever the crypto bubble pops. The hard part is knowing when that will be. But again, it's my guess that the, the, a lot of the cryptocurrencies, this bounce that they've had recently is going to be very short lived and they're going to come back down because again, we have a lot of the problems heading into what's most likely going to be a higher interest rate environment uh, and heading into a, an environment where people are buying risk off assets rather than risk on assets. And that's what Bitcoin is. It's a risk on asset. It's not a risk off asset. It's not a hedge against inflation. Uh, it's just a, a speculative mania. Now, with that, I want to get into Biden's State of the Union address that he made tonight. This was his first official State of the Union address. He made one last March, but the first one that a president makes when they come into office is not the official first uh, State of the Union address, since at that point they've only been in office for two months. But with him now having been in office for a full year, he made his State of the Union address tonight, addressing the nation. Of course, he opened up about the Ukraine situation, uh, extending uh, moral support to them and saying that he's going to continue to be very rough on Russia. But he, he the basically the entire State of the Union address was just Joe Biden doing a bunch of talking about things that are not going to happen, not going to come true. And he made so many invalid points. And I just want to go over a few that I picked up on. Now, one of the things that he said was that he wants products to be to start being made in America again and that we're going to have products starting to be made in America again. And he mentioned that Intel is building a uh, new factory plant in uh, Ohio, 
and that we're going to start making computer chips there. But we yesterday got the merchandise goods trade deficit for the month of February. And the trade deficit that we ran for goods in the month of February was an all-time record high of a deficit of $107.6 billion. So the trade deficit in February alone was over $107 billion, which is the second month in a row we set a record for the highest trade deficit ever. In January, we ran a trade deficit of $101 billion. And again, we're just two months into the year. We have over uh, $200 billion in trade deficits. So by the time we get to the end of the year, our trade deficit is going to be over $1.2 trillion. And Joe Biden is talking about making stuff in America. He talked about how we brought back 366,000 manufacturing jobs in 2021, which again are not jobs that were created. These were just jobs that were shut down because of COVID-19 and then came back with the reopening as COVID policies uh, settled down. And so these were not jobs that were created. These were jobs that were initially there, were taken away, and were simply restored. But even if you take that 366,000 job number, there is that is a very small amount of manufacturing jobs to add, considering we don't manufacture anything in the United States. And again, how do I know we don't manufacture anything in the United States? Because we are running a $107.6 billion merchandise trade deficit. Again, we export 80% of our wheat from Ukraine. We export most of our oil from Russia and Saudi Arabia. We import all of our technological devices from China. We import a lot of our cars from Europe, from Japan, from China. We make very few goods in the United States, and that is why we are running these trade deficits. But we are not going to continue to see increases in manufacturing in the United States for several reasons. But for one is because of extremely high regulatory costs and labor costs in the United States. Now, one of the things Biden said about addressing inflation was he wants to get inflation down, but he wants to do it while increasing uh, wages. And he, you know, he, of course, wants to bring the minimum wage to $15 an hour, but he wants wages to go up for blue collar workers. Well, I don't know what economics 101 class he took in college, but if you raise the cost of wages and labor, that means that costs are going to go up because that is an input cost in the cost of production. And so if we have raises continue to rise, that means that we're going to have more inflation. And again, that is sticky inflation because when workers get wage increases, that is that th- those don't go away over time. But it's not a problem normally when workers get pay raises. That's actually a good thing. It does lead to economic growth, but it's only if workers are getting those pay increases because they're being more productive. It's not good for, for an economy when workers are getting paid more because the businesses are trying to compete with government unemployment benefits that are being shelled out to people who refuse to work. So this is not going to help the economy. But again, he expects to lower inflation and he's going to do it while supposedly allowing uh, labor costs to rise because of all the government handouts that are still going out. And again, look at the Russia-Ukraine conflict. 
We have oil now at $107 per barrel, and these prices are not even the prices you're seeing at the pump yet. The prices you're paying at the pump are from oil that was transported over a month ago. So all these price increases are going to continue to go up. And again, manufacturing couldn't be weaker in the United States because we are running massive trade deficits. It seems every single month we break a record in the trade deficit every single month. And of course, because we're in such a bubble economy in the United States, nobody even pays attention to the merchandise goods deficits. If you go back to the 1987 stock market crash, one of the reasons for that stock market crash was because we had such a bad merchandise goods trade deficit uh, right before the market crashed. But nowadays, when the trade deficits come out, nobody even cares to pay attention because they know it's going to be a record high trade deficit. And everyone just figures that we can just continue to finance these trade deficits by paying with U.S. Treasury bonds. And we can just keep kicking the can down the road on actually paying for these imported goods. And again, that's why you see people buying treasuries as a safe haven, uh, store of value, risk off investment. But again, those are one of the riskiest things you can be in because the dollar over the next several years is going to fall through the floor the same way the Russian ruble is falling through the floor right now. Because again, we don't produce anything. We don't manufacture anything. And all we have is a ton of debt that we can never repay unless we print dollars to pay for it. Now, again, inflation's likely to be over 10% officially in the next few months with all these rising costs from the uh, conflict going on over in Europe. But Joe Biden also reiterated that he wants free pre-K. And again, a lot of this is through the American Rescue Plan bill that that was uh, introduced last year. But he wants free pre-K. He wants free health care for people. He wants to increase infrastructure spending. Uh, He wants to increase uh, veterans affairs benefits. He wants to increase uh, college subsidies. And he wants to do all this. And he claims that not a single penny in taxes is going to be raised on anyone that makes less than $400,000 a year. And again, if you know simple economics and just balance the budget, you know that that can't possibly happen unless we raise taxes on the middle class. So that what, what that means is, since they're not going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for all this, that means that the Federal Reserve is going to have to continue to run the printing press. They're going to have to continue to print more money, to buy more bonds, to loan money to the government, to do all of this spending. But again, the government is already completely insolvent. The government can't honestly pay its loans. And that brings me to uh, Jerome Powell, what I'll talk about in a minute, where he testifies tomorrow, but he's faced with a situation now where inflation is going to get over 10% and he's going to be pressured to raise rates a lot. But before I get into that, one other thing that I picked up on that Joe Biden said was he talked about how democracy is so important for our country and that we must continue to protect the right to vote. Now, first of all, Voting is not a right. If you look at the original Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution, the first 10 amendments, there is nothing that says that voting is a right. Voting is a privilege. Now, the reason that voting isn't a right is because we are a republic. Everyone always mentions that the United States is a democracy 
And people always talk about how we have to protect our democracy. But nobody seems to understand that we're not actually a democracy. We are a republic. Now, the distinction between the two is that in a democracy, everybody gets to participate in government and the vote for uh, government. But, you know, and this is, I believe, a Benjamin Franklin quote, um, one of the better quotes about democracy. But democracy is basically the equivalent, according to Benjamin Franklin, of two wolves and a sheep deciding what they're going to eat for dinner. So in other words, democracy is mobocracy. It's just you have a majority of people outvoting a minority of people to take all of their stuff. And that's why democracy is very dangerous. And that's why the founding fathers didn't form this country as a democracy. They didn't want people who were uninformed voting in the polls. And that's why if you go back hundreds of years ago, a lot of instances you had people had to pay a poll tax in order to vote. Because if you have to pay a poll tax in order to vote, that means if you're going to act, if you're going to not going to pay the tax, that means voting is not that important to you. And it's probably because you're uninformed. Also, that is why uh, the voting age used to be higher. The voting age used to be 21 because they wanted people who were voting to have real life experience. And of course, if you think back to 1789, when the Constitution was ratified, the average 21 year old person was had already been working in their career for years was already living on their own, had a family and kids, right? And so they had a lot of real world experience. Now, if you think of the average uh, 21 year old today, they've never left their parents' house. They still live at home. A lot of them haven't started their careers yet. They don't have a family. And so the voting age should actually be much higher than 21 today. Of course, it's lower than that now, but that's because a lot of politicians want the young person's vote because they know that a lot of people who are younger than 21 are uninformed, and they know those people are a lot easier to win over by promising free stuff. But again, America is a republic, not a democracy. And the reason being is because, again, voting is a privilege, not a right. That is why if you look at uh, certain people, they're not allowed to vote. If voting was a right, that would mean someone who was 15 years old, for example, would be able to vote. But voting is not a right. It's a privilege. So I just caught that and I wanted to go over that for a minute. But getting back to the situation with Jerome Powell. Now, Jerome Powell tomorrow is going to testify before the House uh, of Financial Services Committee. And I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of pressure on him to try and get an answer on whether or not the Federal Reserve is going to stick to its tightening policy the next time they have their meeting. And Again, the markets had initially priced in a couple weeks ago a 50 basis point rate hike from the Federal Reserve, uh, mainly because of the comments that James Bullard made that the Fed is really behind the inflation curve. And it's really become obvious to all market participants that the Federal Reserve is much is very, very far behind the inflation curve. And so the markets were starting to price in a 50 basis point rate hike, which is one of the reasons for why the NASDAQ is down uh, 14.5% well in correction territory. And in fact, it had made it to bear market territory last week before the big rally. But uh, th- there's a lot of um, questions going around now because this Russia uh, and Ukraine situation has gotten much worse over the past week. There's basically two uh, two camps 
with market participants. Now, there's one camp that believes that the market is starting to price out a 50 basis point rate hike and instead starting to price in just a 25 basis point rate hike um, because there is a lot of turmoil in the markets now and because there is a lot of credit and liquidity problems because of the Russia sanctions. So there's a lot of liquidity problems in the banking system. And so a lot of people are expecting a 25 basis point rate hike as opposed to a 50 basis point rate hike. Uh, I would sort of agree with that, uh, with that camp and that thinking. Um, and then, of course, there's another camp that believes that now the Federal Reserve will f- almost certainly raise interest rates 50 basis points, because even though there's a lot of turmoil in the markets, uh, the, the Russia-Ukraine situation is already causing such high levels of price movements in commodities that inflation is going to get much, much worse. And so now the Federal Reserve is even further behind the the inflation curve. Um, But of course, either whether they raise 25 or 50 basis points is irrelevant. That's not going to do anything to slow down inflation. That's well over 10 percent. Now, my again, my thinking is they'll raise uh, rates about 25 basis points because the markets are already struggling so much. And again, this is without rates going up. If the higher rates go, the more the market's going to struggle and go to the downside. But even if you think about a 50 basis point rate hike, right, they're currently at zero. Uh, and so the, the U.S. economy is already slowing down. We actually got some manufacturing data came in weaker than expected today as well. So the economy is slowing. Inflation's really starting to become a burden on the consumer. Uh, people are fi- are finding that they're stretching more and more to make ends meet. Again, prices of food, used cars, housing, rents, all going up, and they're showing no slines- signs of slowing down. You have people's stock portfolios are now getting hit in the United States. People who own cryptocurrencies, th- those portfolios are going down. So you're seeing a, a microcosm of what's going on in Russia with stagflation here in the United States. It's just not anywhere near as bad here yet, although it will get that bad within the next few years, certainly. But you're starting to see the economy slow down significantly. And it's more th- more likely now that the first quarter of this year is going to produce a negative GDP print, especially if you back out the uh, inflation gauge and take inflation out of the GDP forecast. But the economy is slowing down and heading for a recession, in my opinion. And this is going to be the first time we've ever headed into a recession with the Federal Reserve starting its tightening cycle and starting to raise interest rates. And not only that, but if we head into recession, the Fed has no room to cut interest rates to provide relief to the markets or to the economy. So in other words, if we're heading into recession, we're going to head into recession and there's not any any way for the Federal Reserve to save the markets the way they did when we first had the outbreak of COVID-19 and the markets crashed. So we're heading into recession for the first time with the Federal Reserve starting to tighten. And again, they haven't even started to tighten yet. Again, their balance sheet grew last week by $100 billion. It's still at $8.7 trillion. They still hold tons of mortgage-backed securities and U.S. Treasury bonds. They haven't raised interest rates one time yet. We still don't even know if they're going to raise interest rates by 25 or 50 basis points yet. 
So we're we're really in a place where the markets are starting to realize the situation that the Fed is in and that the end game is really near here for the US dollar. And again, that's why we're seeing a lot of buying with gold. And again, today was very significant because not only did gold go up over 2% today, which is a huge move for the price of gold in one day, but it didn't even spike because of a news event. Now, a lot of the times what'll happen is if there's some sort of crisis or emergency that happens in the world, gold will spike on that news very quickly uh, as a knee-jerk reaction to the news. But today it was a very slow and steady climb from 1920 to 1930 to 1940. Uh, it pulled back a few times, but was very resilient and got up all the way to 1945 by the time it ended the day. And again, that's very, very strong buying. It continues to climb that wall of worry. And again, we see more and more people willing to buy and hold gold. And we're and to me, that's a sign that it's not so much just traders buying these uh, buying gold and buying these gold mining stocks, but it's institutional investors are starting to come in and buy these things because they've recognized uh, what's changed in the markets. And again, that's the, the box that the Federal Reserve is in that we're about to start a tightening cycle, supposedly, while we're heading into recession, and that they are so far behind the inflation curve. If they actually tried to fight inflation, they would throw the economy into its deepest depression that it's ever seen. And so people are buying and holding gold. Again, the gold stocks, they did very well today. Newmont mining up over 4.5% on the day. That's a huge move for a stock that pays a dividend well amongst its peers in the S&P 500. You had uh, Fortuna Silver Mines up 9% today. Silver was up 5.5% on the day. So again, huge, huge moves in the commodities markets. Steel up today, iron ore, silver up 5%, gold up 2.5%, oil up over 10%. And you're starting to see, again, people are buying value stocks, they're buying commodities, agriculture, oil, gold, silver. There is a huge rotation that continues to happen beneath the surface, and people are selling growth, buying value, they're selling risk on assets, buying risk off assets. And again, it's because the Federal Reserve, if they're going to fight inflation, they would have to raise interest rates higher than they got to in 1980, the last time we had an inflation problem, and that is over 20%. But of course, the inflation problem today is much worse than it was in the 1970s. We already have inflation is going to be over 10% in the next few months, and it continues to go way up. And at the same time, we're seeing asset values in the stock market come crashing down along with cryptocurrencies. And also we're getting signs that the housing market starting to slow. So if the Federal Reserve starts hiking rates in the environment we're in with a global crisis and the aftermath of the pandemic still going on, they're going to create a financial crisis. And that's, again, why they're going to come up with some sort of an excuse not to raise interest rates very high. And again, I believe that that excuse is now conveniently going to be the Russia-Ukraine situation where they're going to say that they can't do a 50 basis point rate hike because they think there's too much turmoil in the markets and the markets need more support. And again, if they do that, the price of gold is going to go through 2000 because they the, the market is going to realize at that point that the Fed isn't serious about fighting inflation. But even if they raise by 50 basis points uh, in the, uh, the coming weeks, 
again, that's going to cause even more turmoil for the markets. It's going to cause panic in the markets. And then they're eventually going to have to reverse course as the economy slows, especially going into the midterm elections. There's going to be a lot of pressure from the Biden administration to allow the markets to do well and to keep interest rates low to keep the economy stimulated. And again, I'll bring up one last point. But even if they do what James Bullard, the most hawkish uh, Federal Reserve member, wants to do and get interest rates all the way up to 1% by July, 1% is still an extremely accommodative monetary policy. 1% interest rates are ridiculously low. We had interest rates higher before the pandemic even started. And again, a big reason for why they can't raise interest rates even to 1% is because there is so much debt in the economy that if the federal funds rate went to 1%, you would have a lot of consumers default on credit card loans, auto loans, mortgages, student loans. You'd have the government would start to default on its debt. And think about it this way. The government has officially over $30 trillion of national debt. Again, that's continuing to grow at record paces. We're running, again, trade deficits upwards of $100 billion a month. The the federal government, for every 1% increase in bond yields, the federal government has to pay $300 billion a year more in interest payments on the national debt, which most of which expires coming up this year because most of the debt is financed with short-term treasury bills rather than long-term treasury bonds of 30 years. That's the other difference with the scenario we're in is that if you go back to the 1970s, the last time we had this inflation problem, the rise, Paul Volcker was able to raise interest rates to 20% because so much of the government debt and the national debt, it one, it was much lower back then, but two, most of the national debt was financed by 30-year treasury bonds. And so even though the Fed funds rate was going up to 20% by 1980, the government didn't have to roll over its paper because a lot of the debt didn't mature for another 20 years after that. This time it's different because this time, if rates go up, all the debt is financed with short-term T-bills. And so that means if interest rates go up, the interest payments on the national debt go up immediately. And again, the government is only collecting about $3 trillion in tax revenue a year. It's spending $6 trillion in in, uh, spending without the, the interest rates going up. If interest rates go up and the Federal Reserve is supposedly fighting inflation and not printing more money to buy more treasury bonds and loaning it to the government, that means there is no lender to loan the money to the government unless actual investors come in and loan it to them for a long-term time period, which means that treasury bond yields will go way up because investors will demand a high enough interest rate to compensate for inflation, which as we see in this environment, would be well upwards of 15%. And again, there's no way the government could pay that kind of interest on its debt. There's no way consumers would be able to stand a 15% increase in all their debts in credit cards, mortgages, student loans, uh, auto loans. There's no way corporations, especially a lot of the high tech growth stocks, could keep up with all this rise in interest payments on all their corporate debt. And so the entire economy would implode if the Federal Reserve even tried to fight inflation somewhat seriously. But they are never going to catch up because they are so far behind the inflation curve that we can either have a sovereign debt crisis from defaulting on the debt 
honestly, or we can have a currency crisis by trying to print our way out and print the money to pay off all our debts, which again, if we do that, that means that eventually all the nations that export us their goods and take treasuries as payment are going to dump their treasuries onto the market. The bond market is going to crash. Yields are going to skyrocket and U.S. stocks will come crashing down with it as we have a crash in the U.S. dollar. And again, America would look very similar to what Russia looks right now. And we wouldn't have any products to buy here and inflation would skyrocket out of control. So that's going to be it for now. Um, but again, Biden testifies tomorrow. I want to talk about what he says, and I'm very curious on what his tone is going to be as far as giving forward guidance on whether or not the Fed is going to raise interest rates by 50 basis points, 25 basis points, or by option C, which is not to raise interest rates at all. But again, the Fed is in a box and they can't do anything about this because the inflation problem has gotten way too out of control and there's no way at this point it can be reined in.